0: Hey, everyone, this is John Gunter, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Here, uh, we'll have a recording of my sermon that, uh, uh, that we've been going through. We've been going through a series called Emmanuel, A Study of God's Dwelling Places. Uh, again, I want to encourage you to go through each of these. There's only going to be four, and uh, I think it's so vitally important to understand how, how God is related to us throughout the narrative of Scripture. So week one, we talked about God's plan in the beginning in Genesis and the garden. Week two, we talked about the tabernacle. And this week, we talk about Solomon's temple. And as you may have seen in the notes there, uh, God may not have looked on that uh, temple quite the way we do with our American eyes. And I think, it's, uh, I think it's going to be interesting. So again, thank you for listening to this podcast and come see us. give you a little taste of who Mimi was, so uh, anyway, I, I just had to share that, I won't let uh, Katie get up here, it'd be a it'd be a food for sure. Uh, we've been going through the uh, the series that I've called Emmanuel, uh, talking about God's dwelling place. You remember two weeks ago, we talked about in the beginning, we went to Genesis, and we talked about God creating the garden, and we remember we said, God created, and it always ended with God looked on his creation, and it was... Good, yeah. So God looked over what He created and said, "Yeah, that's that's what I want." And so God created this place He wanted, which was fantastic, and it it uh, provided everything Adam and Eve needed. But for them, it wasn't enough, and so they actually walked away from God. But we see from that story that God did want to dwell with us. Last week we talked about the tabernacle. So once God leaves the garden, He banishes Adam and Eve from it. You know, well, has God left for good? And what we see. And Exodus, through the story of the tabernacle, is no, indeed, God is not giving up. That God is okay uh, moving to a different place. That God will lead his people again. Obviously, there were consequences. God had not walked with people like he had walked with Adam and Eve for a long time. But now, again, God dwells with his people. Um, oh, one thing before we uh, get, get more into that. I wanted, I put this up last week. I want you to see this again. This is the book I'm using to uh, to organize this. And again, that's Daniel Hayes, and that's the, you can't see it, it's the Temple and the Tabernacle, which is a, uh, a wonderful book that uh, uh, gets it out there. And we also used this passage from Matthew 1. It said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what, church? God with us. And so, when, when you have that in Scripture, remember, they, they cared very much about what, what names meant. And so when you get not only a name, but you get Matthew explaining what it meant, you've got to go, okay, well, this is important. Why is it important for God to let us know through his Son, God with us? Okay, and well, that's what we've seen so far, right? We've seen God dwelling in the garden. We've seen God dwelling in the tabernacle. And this week we talk about the temple. So the, the temple begins, I guess, kind of with the story of David. Uh, David looks around at some point and, and realizes that God has been dwelling in tents. And, and David looks like, man, I've got a nice house. But God still dwells in a tent. But uh, David never builds the temple. David has a, a, an interesting life, doesn't he? He wasn't a perfect man. He had a lot of, uh, a lot of things going on. And so maybe that distracted him some, but he never built a temple. So that would fall to his son, Solomon. So today we're talking about Solomon and his temple. Solomon begins to build the temple. And uh, what do you think about when you think about Solomon's temple? First thing that comes to mind, I'm sorry? Grandeur? Yeah. Like something to look at, yeah. Anybody else? What do you think of? Nobody thinks of anything. <laughs> like, I hadn't really thought about that. Thank you, preacher. A little heads up would have helped me with it. <laughs> <coughs> Magnificent. I'm sorry, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Put a lot into it, right? And so we're, we're going to kind of explore that. But, but Solomon begins building this temple. And we know, those of you who know the story of, of Solomon in the temple, that he creates this fantastic building for God, dedicating it to the Lord, saying, Lord, you can, you can dwell in this temple instead of that tent tabernacle. But as God looks down on Solomon, watching him build this, look what he said. He says, as for the temple you're building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David, your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people. So what is God saying through this? Why didn't he say, hey, won't you build it nice? Make it look good. I need a good spot. What does he say? If if you observe, if you obey, if you'll stay with me, I will be faithful to you. That's what I want to do is stay with you if you will do this. Now, the interesting thing about this is uh, if you read this, This is in 1 Kings, if you want to go read it. I think you can start about chapter 6 through about chapter 11 or so. Uh, And when you, God tells Solomon this, and the response in Scripture is not, yes, sir, no, sir, whatever. It just says, and Solomon built the temple. And so you kind of get a a heads up to, all right, well, is Solomon clued in here? Is he focused on what God wants? Because God's having this conversation, and all you get is, and Solomon built the temple. Interesting enough. Let's talk about dimensions for a second. I know math is always uh, a favorite subject for this church, uh, but we're going to talk about it for just a second. So the tabernacle that God had people build was 15 feet wide, 45 feet long, and 15 feet high. The temple, 30 feet wide, 90 feet long. You see what Solomon did here? 45 feet high. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double the width and length and we'll triple the height. Anybody got high ceilings in their house? It just makes it feel like, you know, much more open and stuff. Yeah. Uh, even though uh, you may not have the same square footage, you know, or you may have the same square footage as somebody else with a low ceiling, It just feels open. It feels nice. And so he builds this, this very large thing. And so just as a reminder, this is what the tabernacle would have looked like. So the Israelites are in camp. They are, they're going through the wilderness. And what you have in the center of the camp is this large, you've got the fence covered, and then you've got this large tent where God dwells in the center of the camp. I want you to keep that with you just a second. Keep this visual with you. Let's let's go back to the dimensions again. The temple was 30 feet wide, 90 feet long, 45 feet high. The porch on the temple, 15 feet long by 30 feet wide. The square footage, the total, 3,150 square feet. Now, I'm not going to ask a show of hands. Some of you got houses bigger than that, right? now. I'm sure of it. Okay, so... How's your vision of the temple going right now? The, the author and king starts say, starts giving you more details about what's going on here. Because after Solomon gets done with the temple, he starts building what is called his, uh, as his palace the uh, uh, of the Forest of Lebanon is what it's called. And that palace is 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The porch on it, 75 feet long by 45 feet. Uh, feet high, the square footage of his palace is fourteen thousand six hundred twenty-five. So, in the tabernacle, you got this visual of God in the middle. Like you walked out of your tent, that's what you saw, right? You know where God is dwelling among you. Here, God, you know, we think about the story of Solomon. You think about this wonderful temple that was, uh, no, no doubt, a uh, just a wonder to behold. Uh, you know this, this, this place of, you know, it'd be a wonder in the world if it was still here. And then just among this palace complex, it's not even the biggest thing. 14,625 square feet was this house. Uh, one more point on this. The temple was 3,150 square feet. The palace porch was 3,375. So if you were to read that, that story in Kings today, you may read through there and think, through American eyes that, man, what an awesome thing Solomon is building for God. And what the king's writer, the writer in 1 Kings is trying to tell you very subtly, not overtly, is, is look at how he's doing it. Now, he builds this, but look look at how he's building his own place. Even the porch on his own place is bigger than what he has built for God. You think you think he's trying to get something across there? Yeah, let's look, let's look a little more as we go. Uh, I want to mention this is where uh, Solomon's temple and the second temple stood. This is in Jerusalem. This is in 2017. This is actually a mosque now. Uh, it's Dome on the Rock. Uh, and I saw this just the other day, so it bothers me. So I want to tell you this. Um, Sometimes you will come across something on Facebook that will make you scratch your head, maybe make you angry. Well, that's all of Facebook. I guess I covered it all. No, but uh, uh, sometimes, uh, like the other day, I came across a thing that said, we don't even know if Solomon existed or his temple. Well, the reason we haven't uh, excavated all his temple is uh, the Muslims here aren't real keen on us, you know, ripping this up and, and getting down in there. Uh, but around the side it, as it uh, goes into Kings, it, it details like even fences that go out from the, the palace complex and we have found those. So if you ever get to something like that, just just take a breath. because a lot of times there's a there's an easy explanation. But this is where it would have stood uh, and this is a very prominent place in Israel. Uh, and I should have put a, another uh, picture up here, but very hilly. and so this sets up uh, on the mountain where it would have been seen. but again, the temple, uh, was just a, a small part of this huge palace complex that Solomon builds. I want to point out three differences in the tabernacle versus the temple. Number one, the role of God in the construction of uh, the temple versus the tabernacle. Remember last week we talked about, uh, remember in, in Genesis, I read all those passages where it says, and God said, or And God created. And as you, you finished my sentence a while ago, he looked at it and it was good, right? And then last week, we talked about the tabernacle. So in both places, you have seven times where it says, and God did something, right? You got that time. God created. God did this. God did that. In the account of the temple, all you get is, and Solomon did this. Now, unfortunately, I think that's a commentary on all of our lives at times, because we just, we already know the reason. We already know the answer. And so we just head out. We don't pray about it. We just go. We need, to be, we need to pray more about things, don't we, before we just head out on them. But I think that's what that's what we see here. But the role of God in this is just, hey, follow my commands as Solomon is just kind of head down. I'm going to build this. Number two is the role, attitude, and participation of the Israelites regarding the construction. Do you remember how I described the building of the tabernacle last week? That God asked Moses to, hey, have all of these people bring, they, they're to freely give whatever they have, you know, whatever they want to offer for the building of this. You remember what happened eventually? Moses had to step back and say what? Enough. No pastor or preacher has said that since. <laughs> Stop bringing your money, folks. You know, we, we, we don't want to do with it. But But here, the way Solomon builds is he starts forced labor camps. It talks about 30,000 people being in forced labor camps, having to do the work, having to go out in the mines, having to chisel rocks, having to create this out of force. Do you think you would feel differently about a place that you freely gave to and saw built before your eyes uh, and a place that you were forced into labor camps to build? Any of you real affectionate about the one that you had had to serve for? No? Well, that's what we see here with Solomon, a stark difference. Again, the king's writer, as you read this story, you don't see, and Solomon was terrible because he did this. It just keeps laying out the facts. This is how Solomon did it. And number three, the identity and training of the primary craftsman involved in the construction. So the tabernacle account is God told Moses, I have given this guy wisdom. I have filled him with my Holy Spirit to create all of these fantastic things that we're going to fill this tabernacle with. Solomon's idea is, you know what? I know a guy that's built some temples in a different area. We'll get him. We'll hire him. And so Solomon goes outside of the Israelites where the tabernacle was all Israelite led. They, they donated, they gave, they built, they used their power that was given to them by God to erect this fantastic thing. And what you get in this temple is, account is in Solomon did and Solomon hired and Solomon forced a little bit different feeling, right? When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. So uh, background, when Solomon gets done with all of this uh, building of the temple, he does pray this fantastic prayer, kind of consecrating the temple to God. And it's really a beautiful prayer. And God says, okay, I've heard your prayer. I said, I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. So even though Solomon goes about it in the wrong way, you don't see God at the forefront, you see Solomon. God hears that prayer and says, okay, I will be there. But he says, as for you, If you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject his temple. I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among the nations. Here, God, I have built you this wonderful temple. And God says, Hey, this looks awesome, right? What do you, what do you get from this? God's response to Solomon, he's just built this. He said, he doesn't, he doesn't thank him for this, this beautiful temple. He said, listen, what's important is who you are. Are you going to serve me? Are you going to be obedient to me? Are you going to uh, to follow me just as God is showing us that he wants to walk with us? Are you going to have this relationship with me? That's, what, that's what's important. He says, if you don't, this will all be gone. He says, this temple will become a heap of rubble. Did that happen, y'all? Gone. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land, and to this temple? People will answer, Well, because they have forsaken the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. Does God want a relationship with his people? Yeah. Is there consequences for Deciding not to follow God. Yeah, both are true, right? And so God says in this moment, what's important is not this beautiful place you have built me, but it is who you are, your heart. I just want to show you real quick, just a visual. When it describes what the temple looked like, it's amazing. First of all, as I've, I've laid out, Solomon He's forcing people into labor. He is uh, he is calling on people who served other gods. He's doing all of these things uh, just, just in the name of extravagance. How beautiful can I make it? How big can I make it? He overlays everything with gold. That's not just a weird color. Everything in there is gold. Another subtle thing that the writer of Kings does right here is talk more about these columns than any other thing in the temple. Now, the columns have no theological significance. The significance is usually where you would find columns like this are in pagan temples. And so the, the temple, as Solomon built it, has a lot of influences from pagan deities. You see the influence coming in. And though the writer's not telling you, hey, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is right. he's laying it out. This is what Solomon did. Solomon's splendor. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Isn't that an interesting number? I think it's interesting. I I don't know if it was meant, but isn't it interesting that it stops there? But it says, not including the revenues from merchants and traders. Why didn't you include all that? Like, I want to let you know (coughs) he made this much. 666, right? Some of you wince if we had that song on the board. You know, 666, I'm not singing that. But he said, not including from merchants, traders, and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories, all King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Anybody got a house like that we can come look at? Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. You know why? He had so much gold. What's this. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Uh, once every three years, it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. So he had plenty. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all other kings of the earth. Remember, Solomon is, is the man that you remember from the story was asking of God, I just want wisdom. And God said, well, I'll give you all of this. I'll give you all the uh, the, the things you want, and I'll give you the wisdom you want. Now, how are you going to use it? But it said, the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore, fig trees in the foothills. Cedar was uh, something that if you made a house of cedar, it was seen as something very prideful. You had to bring this in from somewhere else. You're just putting as much money into something as you can. So it, this is how great am I? And again, it says cedar as plentiful as the sycamore, as the fig trees there in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Q at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse of 150. Uh, they also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. What's that, why is that a problem? You see the relationships being formed here. You see the influence in the temple with, again, pagan gods. Okay, Solomon is building something here, but it's not as good as we might think on the surface. Now Solomon's wives, some of your favorite part right here. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and the Hittites. He was a man about the people, right? My gracious, what do you do with that? They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because I don't like them. They're ugly. They're the wrong color. What does he say? It's not any of that, is it? What does he say? They will turn your heart to other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon in his infinite wisdom, we can add in here, right? Held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Anybody got any ideas where you start with that? He said, and his wives led him astray. Of course they did. I think one could, right? Much less 700. You know he forgot an anniversary with that deal, right? (laughs) Which two is it today that I've got to remember? (laughs) As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Let's stop and make a a big point right now. How many of you know that David had some very uh, bad moral failings? I need to remind you of any of them. But look at how Scripture talks about David with God. Remember, we've we've got to figure out how David, with all of his moral failings, you know, cheating on uh, having this affair with Bathsheba, having her husband killed, all of these things, with God saying, he's a man after my own heart, and then coming to right here in Kings and said, uh, not only did Solomon not do this, but David uh, David followed the Lord completely. And I'm talking to a room full of people, and thus I know you have sinned. You've done things that you know God doesn't want you to do, right? But look at the opportunity you have. If you turn back to God, God sees you as someone who completely followed him. It says right before that, the heart of David, his father, had been fully devoted to the Lord, despite all the things we know. So don't sit here this morning thinking, man, it's too bad. You don't know. God wants to see you like this. Let's let's talk about a couple of things here. God's instructions for kings. I told you the the writer of Kings is kind of subtly going into this. Let's let's talk about what Solomon should have been looking at. Number one in Deuteronomy, there's a, a list. Remember, God didn't want kings. He said, "I need to be your king. I need to you need to follow me." But you know, if you're going to have kings, this is what's going to be. A king must not acquire great numbers of horses. Wrong. Didn't didn't see that one right says, you know, it's for a chariot army. So he's relying on the military, not God. says so especially uh, horses from Egypt and, of course, a lot of ties there to um, different things. Number two, the king must not take many wives. Hmm. 699 short of that deal, right? Plus, however, the 300 concubines fit in, right? We're talking about 1,000 women. Need to have a prayer for that man right now. No. Number three, the king must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. How are we doing with this guy? Again, very subtly, as you're telling the story. I mean, we're we're again we're looking through our American culture, thinking, man, that's a lot of stuff. That's awesome. And and everything he's, he's laying out there is this is how Solomon is walking away from God. This is very plain. And check out number four, had he listened to this one. Uh, The king must make a copy of the law, which is Deuteronomy, read it aloud all the days of his life, and follow carefully all the words and decrees of the law, and then he will do one, two, and three above, right? Solomon missed it. He was so enamored with what he wanted to do and what he wanted to acquire and how he wanted to be seen uh, by everybody in the world. He had audiences with kings, queens, all of these people. It was all about him. It was all about extravagance. And again, God looks down this extravagance and he doesn't say, hey, how awesome is all this cedar and gold? He says, you need to follow me. Now, some of you may have come from traditions that had beautiful church buildings, stained glass and some beautiful things. We in the churches of Christ, I don't mean to offend anybody, but we were uh, especially good at building very ugly buildings. (laughs) Like, Like like one window's too much. Uh, I don't know if we built them with the must already in there, but maybe it was my church. That was probably just my church. But like we, we kind of <laughs> looked at these situations and thought, you know what? That, uh, I'm not going to build it like that. This is not important because Solomon did this, and Solomon didn't do it right. Right? Let's talk about this. Outward appearance does not equal inner holiness. Somebody say amen. Church, we have been obsessed with outward appearance and not at all concerned with inner holiness. Though we have been a church who built some very uh, plain buildings and we'd say, hey, we don't want to spend God's money. We have a lot of reasons. But then uh, the same kind of people, and maybe your church, your tradition was the same way. When we would come to meet together, we wanted to make sure that everybody wore a suit and tie that everybody had something expensive or nice on. Again, and and we made it sound like a holy thing. You're giving this to God. Solomon gave (laughs) vast wealth of expensive things and uh, a marvel to behold. And God looks down and he says, won't you just follow me? Won't you make sure your relationship is right with me? And here we are down here. Chasing after the external. How do I look? How do I appear before all of you? That's one reason I like our small groups, because when you get in a small group like that, you kind of share. And then all of a sudden, you, you know who I am, right? have been in my house. Who are you? Outward appearance does not equal inner holiness. The, uh, the, the thing I really want to make a point about is all of the filters that we use on all our social media now. Man, God loves you for who you are. Don't put that filter on there. Have some worth because that's, this whole story, this whole series is about how much God loves you. He wants you for you, not, not the thing you make up, not the, uh, the the plaster, not the outward appearance that I'm trying to project. God loves you for you and he wants to be with you. Again, though it's not in the garden, he goes within the tabernacle, Though Solomon does not follow his instructions about any of this, Solomon just kind of goes out and does it. God still inhabits the temple. God wants that relationship with you. So many of us are, we think too much about God uh, hating us, kind of like the last week when I talked about Jonathan Edwards' sermon, famous, uh, famous sermon from the 1700s, which I don't know if I told you guys it's called. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. If you're gonna look that up, you can you can find it. I wouldn't recommend it, but I shared enough. But our view of, of God is that you know he hates us. We are so vile in his eyes that he is so pure and we are so disgusting that God wants to just knock us off the map at every turn. I want you to notice in this story, what was it that that took uh, that where God said, okay, this relationship has gone too far, this is this is separated. Was it the chariots? Was it the horses? Was it the wives? Was it the concubines? Was it the gold and silver? What was it that made this relationship break apart? What was it? Choosing what? Choosing idols, choosing other gods. So if you're sitting here right now thinking, you know what? God's going to knock me off the the book of life. He's going to rip that page out. Uh, When I forget to do something here at lunch or at the store in a minute, God is very patient in Scripture. God shows over and over how much he loves us and how much he'll even, you know, change the way he he dwells or whatever he does. We asked the question a couple weeks ago, does God change? And a lot of times our instinct is to say no, but Scripture says, yeah, I'll change where I live. I'll relent from tearing this place apart if you'll just repent because I want this relationship. God loves you and he wants to dwell with you. And number three, where's your heart? Because I think that's the story here, especially the way the king's writer kind of subtly tells the story of Solomon. The Solomon, you know, he, he starts off with this wisdom from God. It seems like a great relationship. But for whatever reason, slowly he lets these influences take him in another direction. And some of us may be there right now. We we haven't even thought about it, but there are people in our lives, there are situations in our lives that are kind of slowly tugging us away. A lot of times, I believe it's so slow that you don't even realize it. But you're moving away from God, and that's what I think we see in this story. As Solomon is pulled very slowly away from God. You see the influences. You see the relationships that he builds with these people, these royal women, and that, that's what he would do was... These kings would would intermarry to have peace with other kingdoms. Well, the downfall, again, what God said, not because I don't like those people, not because they're ugly or anything else, is that they're going to lead your heart away from God. And so right now, this morning, some of you may need to either work on a relationship or several. You may need to look at a situation that's in your life right now and say, I need to be out of that because I feel like I'm being pulled away from God. And so I just ask you this morning, where is your heart? Is it focused on God, the God who loves you, the God who wants to dwell with you, the God who's showing you over and over, I'll do whatever it takes. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about the power, the gift of the Holy Spirit promised in Acts 2. where God even says, you know what? We've tried it a lot of ways. I'm going to come down there. I'm going to send my only son to die for you despite the ways you walked away from you. That's who got it, not the Jonathan Edwards version. So where's your heart today? You have the opportunity. God gave Solomon all the wisdom in the world. He chose to walk away. God created us, He loves us, He wants to walk with us, but He gives you a choice. And so we're about to sing an invitation song where you have a choice. I want to be right with God, because God is standing there again as the prodigal son that did everything wrong. But the picture of the father, Jesus tells us, is of one waiting, arms open, ready to have a feast, ready to have a celebration. The son returned. He didn't hold it against him. He didn't point out all of his sins. He said, welcome home. That's where you may be this morning. Would you come home as he stands?